Hello and welcome to the Ocean Impact Podcast. Today's guest is Ian Urbina, investigative reporter and the man behind this wonderful project, The Outlaw Ocean. Now, boy, did I have a good time getting to interview Ian. I'm so appreciative he made the time to speak to me. He is in demand. He's got a lot of work on his plate. But um, it was just an important conversation to share. This book has been definitely read by many members of the OIO team and takes people into this uncharted, unruly world of the high seas. And it is unputdownable. The stories in this book will just make you realize how implicit many of us are in these horrible human and environmental abuses that take place on the ocean every single day. It really is eye-opening stuff. Now, if like me, you find this podcast and this conversation really intriguing and want more, I really do encourage you to go and check out Ian's work. You can go to the Outlaw Ocean website. He's got a great YouTube channel and he's committed to trying to expand this series of this body of work into more journalism about the sea and we can help him do that. So make sure you support Ian and all his great work. Uh, I think this is an episode that you really should try and share around. Um, People need to know about this stuff. So share it, like it, comment, ask questions, write a review. We really appreciate your ongoing support of the Ocean Impact Podcast. Very pleased to have on the podcast today Ian Urbina, um, you know, incredible award-winning investigative reporter, Pulitzer Prize winner. But what we're really going to be talking about today is his incredible reporting that makes up the book, The Outlaw Ocean, which stemmed from the series, The Outlaw Ocean, that was published in the New York Times. Uh, thanks for being here, Ian. Thank you for having me. Let's start where I always like to start, which is at the beginning of you. Uh, tell us a little bit about you and specifically your relationship with the ocean and how that's evolved over time. So I um, did not grow up uh, you know, with a deep relationship with the ocean. Um, it amounted to summer you know, beach trips, uh, but never really, uh, sailing or, or, um, any sort of maritime activity. Um, and then I was in grad school doing a doctoral dissertation on anthropology and, um, was pretty burnt out, uh, about four years into it and, um, wanted to take a break and decided, uh, the furthest place I could get away from the cold Chicago winters was, uh, taking a job on a ship as an anthropologist that, and the ship was anchored in Singapore. And I thought I would, you know, take uh, four or five months uh, doing that and recharge the battery. And um, so I flew to Singapore and got on the ship and the ship never left port. Uh, there was some huge snafu with paperwork. And so we were stuck there in port and I ended up spending a whole lot of time with a, a wild variety of seafarers, you know, merchant mariners and super yacht, you know, deckhands and, and fishing boat crew and, and, you know, um, was just, again, very anthropologically, uh, riveted by the kind of diaspora tribe that is that workforce and, um, a, how 
huge they are and b how invisible they are and 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 sort of how diverse their experience is and to some degree how they really are a tribe you know, own language and own codes of conduct and own life experience um, that's very different than anything i had ever encountered so that was my first kind of exposure to the sea it was really to seafarers and i kind of harbored from that day forward this desire to to um find a way to work on those people tell their stories so you spent then uh, a career in investigative reporting and then had the chance in 2014 to basically start this series, The Outlaw Ocean. Could you tell us a little bit about uh, how your career in investigative reporting led to the point where you could actually go out there with the support of the New York Times to start creating this series? Yeah, so I um, had always wanted to do this kind of journalism. And by that, I mean... Um, international, long-form, highly narrative, uh, investigative. Investigative, in my head, defined as um, having a mission to shine the light on things that are broken and in a constructive, fair, but rigorous way, kind of bare-knuckled, prosecutorial kind of journalism, um, having the luxury of time, not being a beat reporter, where I got to turn stories around every 48 hours, having months to really kind of drill in deep on a topic and polish the prose and and look for virgin snow topically you know new topics or new ways to tell old topics um and uh i uh, i dreamed of doing that uh, but i had to go through the stations of the cross if you will and and um prove to my editors and the institution that I could be trusted and I actually could live up to that kind of work. And so I had a bunch of jobs in, in the first decade of my work at the Times. Um, but I slowly started doing more and more of these long form investigative projects. Uh, and um, I think this was the pinnacle for me in the sense that um, most of the work I'd done, I'd some, done some international uh, investigative work, um, and uh, but never... Uh, this is almost like space travel. You know, there's travel and then there's space travel, you know, where you actually leave the planet. And this was space travel. This was a travel of a different sort. I'd been to war zones and I'd been undercover and I'd been d done lots of things, but I'd never kind of gone to this beyond the horizon. And, and um, uh, you know, and, and I actually, um, like I said before, I, I had not spent any real time at sea. I'd spent a lot of time around seafarers, but, and so um, I, uh, when I first began doing it, I was lucky to find out I don't get seasick. Uh, this never would have happened. The book never would have been produced if that hadn't been the case. And then I also was somewhat shocked to find just how um, awe-inspiring and humbling and gorgeous and scary that space is, you know, the, the, um, the high seas and, you know, far from shore. And um, the experience of long stints at sea and the sort of strange mix of agoraphobia and claustrophobia that you have, you know, on these ships where you're stuck in a confined quarter with people for weeks. Um, but you're also in this, you know, kind of strangely huge space that makes you feel naked and small. Um, so all those things, I think, were really mind blowing and kind of got me addicted to it. So given then the the ticket and the approval to, to start the series, you then spent basically five years creating it. Um, give people a bit of a snapshot of, of what is the Outlaw Ocean series and the book. Um, what did you set out to do and what have you achieved? Yes, I mean, at its core, the uh, one of the initial and um, kind of fundamental 
uh, ambitions journalistically of the reporting was number one, these were methodological ambitions. You know, we want to do this in a certain way and differently than we thought it had been done before. So number one, let's go, you know, if, if two thirds of the planet is water and much of that space is high seas, um, my observation was that there's a lot of advocacy and a lot of academic research, but not a whole lot of journalism that comes out of that space. And to the extent that journalism comes out of it, it's usually historically, as I read the clip file going back 15, 20 years, it's usually as told um, by reporters as they talk to people that as they return to shore. And so I said, let's go out into the space and actually report on site on these vessels. And that will be challenging methodologically getting on some of these vessels. Um, but let's do that because that'll provide readers with a vicarious sense. And also just, you know, done right gives, for, you know, good reporting, good writing, because um, you're there and you can describe things five senses. Um, secondly, um, when I would talk about maritime crime or say, my mom would say, what are you working on? I'd say, oh, bad stuff that happens at sea. Immediately the response from anyone would be, oh, so like Somali piracy and the BP spill. Like that was the spectrum, um, largely for Hollywood reasons of what people thought about as bad behavior at sea. And not wrong, but very narrow. And my goal was to say, yes, but let's expand that taxonomy w much wider and show them that there's a diversity of not all bad, but a lot of bad things happening out there and, and, and a diversity of types of characters out there. So that taxonomy or that spectrum ultimately, you know, was broadened to include, you know, murder of stowaways in the post 9-11 era and sort of how abuses of stowaways are occurring more and differently. Um, not spills like the BP, but intentional dumping of oil, of oil and other waste, you know, to the tune of, you know, more oil is dumped by ships intentionally every three years and the BP and the Valdez spill combined, you know. Um, why? How? Um, uh, arms trafficking and this sort of multi-billion dollar um, kind of quiet army of private maritime security guards that emerged after, mostly after 2008, uh, in response to the Somali piracy problem. And who governs these guys? What happens when they kill? How do we know whether it was legitimate killing or not? You know, all those sorts of things. That whole space, um, uh, you know, um, advocates who are out there um, using the gray area that is that space um, to achieve often what they view, and maybe not wrong, um, ethical targets, goals, be it to saving whales or providing abortions to women that need it or what have you, um, who are the advocates that are out there and what are they doing? And um, uh, so abortion providers at sea and, and professional repo men who steal ships on behalf of banks and mortgage lenders, you know, how do they do it and, you know, who hires them and is it lawful and, you know, just a wide, you know, illegal whaling, illegal fishing, just so go out there and just show the, the seedy, diverse cast of characters that actually exist out there. And um, so that was the goal. And, and uh, to some degree, you're the reader, so you can decide how much we achieved it. And, and at the end of six years, there comes the book. And then, and then uh, I thought, okay, I should probably put this down, but I don't want to. So that's when I said, you know what, I'm, I'm not going to put it down. And I doubled down for, you know, to continue doing it. So that's what I'm still doing now.
Yeah, and if that wasn't captivating for listeners to want to go and read the book and dive deeper, then I don't know what is, because you probably just touched on a half dozen of the stories that are in the 14 chapters and 440-odd pages. It is compelling. Let's talk a little bit about, you know, this idea of trying to govern the ungovernable and and lawlessness. Maybe give us a bit of a glimpse into the history of the sea and particularly laws of the sea. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think um, not to get too meta, I do think it's important to to go high altitude, you know, and first think about almost the intellectual history of this space and to think about the fact that, you know, for eons in literature and in law and in just popular imagination, the sea has, and in practical kind of material realities of labor forces and such, the sea has been this realm that kind of belonged to no one and everyone. And um, it was a space where people, largely through history, men, um, went to escape um, governments, other people, laws, um, the pace of landed life, right? And so you see in the intellectual history of the ocean um, this romanticized, sprawling frontier where men could be men and they went up against big whales and colossal waves and their own demons and whatnot. Right. And I think like that's really relevant, you know, to really understand what it still is today, because um, there's a reason that the sea was cast that way, because in my view, in many ways, it is that is it is a um, frontier. And to some degree, because of its sheer size, it will always be a frontier. It's untamable uh, for the sheer scope of it. And um, uh, OK, now I think now to move outside of literature and ideas into the realm of law, the very um, uh, legal history around the space was one in which uh, for reasons of piracies and privateers and the rise of modern capitalism and, and global commerce, um, the, the, the high seas, this, the international waters um, became as the nation, as nation states emerge, as countries emerge, they kind of realize, hey, look, we need to all agree that that space is everyone's, right? And we need to have one rule. If those pirates um, uh, mess with any of us, we all team up against them, but we don't mess with each other. So uh, that's the sort of really crass, simplistic version of mare liberum, you know, kind of freedom of the seas. So it's supposed to be this highway that everyone gets to use and you don't mess with each other. And if we can do that, then we all can get along. Commerce can flourish, et cetera, et cetera. And that has worked really well from a commercial standpoint, you know, kind of allowing a freedom of activity out there, but a requirement not to mess with each other. And um, so globalization is really to a large degree, um, thanks to the shipping commerce and that freedom and containerization. Okay. Um, what it has also meant, though, is that when other sorts of behaviors happen out there that are non-transferring of Nike shoes and iPhones from A to B, you know, um, when there's other things like industrial fishing or mining for oil and gas or a murder a rape, a disappearance of a deckhand, a contract about hours worked, all these sorts of mundane, real things that happen out there too. The legal structure around who should investigate, who should prosecute, what happens to those people if they do wrong, it's all very murky, 
and even to this day to a degree that even Antarctica or the atmosphere or out of space isn't as murky in some ways as as the high seas. So uh, there is a dark underbelly of that sort of laissez-faire status that um, is, in my view, one of the reasons that the outlaw ocean is outlaw, you know, and and that many of the vigilante behaviors that are fighting the good fight, depending on your perspective, and they just straight up awful behaviors like murder and and mayhem are also allowed uh, to flourish with impunity. Yeah, you mentioned there, obviously, it is this open freeway and, um, you know, predominantly shipment of iPhones and Nike shoes and, you know, 90% of all the goods that we touch uh, on a daily and annual basis are transported by um, movement of ships. But I would love to talk a little bit about seafood. And I suppose this is lending itself to my conservation lens and that of OIO. Um, tell us a little bit about what you encountered um, with the fishing industry and all its different incarnations. And obviously the the human stories behind this, and that's obviously a tease for, for human slavery and trafficking and, and all that's associated with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, so you're quite right. To think of the maritime space from a work perspective, you should first divide it into the merchant marine and the fishing, right? Two very different worlds. The merchant marine carries stuff, freighters, oils, wheat, Nikes. Uh, and then the fishing realm is its own universe and has its own distinct history that has also benefited uh, from the freedom of the seas. And you have long haul fishing and then you have nearshore fishing, which are really, you know, the bifurcation within fishing. Nearshore fishing, those guys, mostly guys, are out and back in a day, in a week, right? And to some degree, what you see there, the types of crimes are pretty different and in many ways far less acute. So if you go to the subsection that is long haul fishing, fishing, um, now you're in a different. Now you're in the space, you know, where the vast majority of what I what I cover in the outlaw ocean happens. These are ships that might spend, um, you know, nine months at sea. Uh, they may be flagged and port in Songkla, Thailand, but they fish off the coast of Puntland, Somalia. Um, so really far distances. Um, they may be ships that are 300 miles from Ghana. Um, in high seas, but they stay fishing. Some of them are um, uh, engaged in transshipment, so they are fishing continuously, and then supply vessels, often called motherships, go out, grab, get the fish, provide them with fuel, ice, whatever, and then bring the fish back, but the fishing vessels continue. So there's this whole economy of different things that are happening in the long-haul space, and um, those are the, the most brutal ships. Um, they're really beyond the reach of oversight. There are no spot checks on this kind of Dickensian factory. You know, no one can knock on the door and show up and check the premises. Um, uh, and there's also, again, the cultural element to take into account. You know, fishing is this, um, you know, I, I've covered truck driving, coal mining, and a bunch of industries that are pretty um, masculine, insular, rough guy, you know, type oil and gas. Um, and none compares to fishing, you know, because a there's a military culture on the vessel in which there's this very strict hierarchy and captain is God, you know, um, and um, just the mere geography of being out there for so long also makes it, um, you know, uh, Bad things can happen out there, and it's easier to get away with them. Murder, disappearing people, abuses, um, 
so and then the 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 raw conditions on the vessels themselves often just horrific. I don't know how else to describe it. You know, rat and roach infested um, industrial workplaces that are sometimes going 20 hours of a 24 hour day because they're in a patch where there's a lot that needs to get done and there's no time to sleep and that could go on for two weeks straight. And what's funny or dark uh, um, is probably the better word is that um, the history of law around fishing has always been exceptionalist. So a lot of the modern labor laws that put like, you know, weekends and, you know, eight hour, nine hour days and these sorts of things do not legally apply in fishing. Uh, and um, that's largely because through time, the fishing industry has somewhat legitimately, but mostly just self-servingly argued that we're not like other industries. And, you know, when we hit it may take two weeks for us to get to the fishing grounds. And when we're in the fishing grounds, I need those guys to work 20 hour days because we have to get the job done while the school of fish is there and they can't work the legal, you know, Australian limit of a nine hour day and five hours off. Um, and for us to break even. So there are all these like through time, these special carve outs that have been afforded fishing that that fostered the just brutal conditions on many of these boats. And the last thing I'll say, and this it sort of speaks to your very work is um, kind of the the combination of industrial and overfishing and climate change have conspired to a situation in which a lot of the nearshore stocks of fish have collapsed. And so a fisherman might, you know, 10 years ago have been able to catch the bare minimum he needed to break even in a week. And now he has to go 200 miles further and stay two weeks longer to catch that bare minimum. And the economics of the fuel and labor input to do that don't make sense, right? It just doesn't work. And what that ha that constellation of factors has incentivized dark behavior like the use of forced labor or migrant labor or just labor that you then uh, bamboozle and don't pay you know say oh i'm wiring the money back to your family don't worry about it and then you let off and no money was sent and these things have become more commonplace as the competition within fishing has gotten more acute so therefore you know there's an appetite out there for people particularly in developed countries to want to try and ensure that there's a, a level of consciousness behind their consumerism and you've just pointed out then this depletion of of fish stocks and 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 wild catches whilst also highlighting human trafficking and slavery and everything that comes along with it like how is, has the book and your work seeded or supported campaigns to try and address this is there are you seeing any glimmers of hope there that we can overcome some of these issues or is it really then back again to this idea of it being somewhat ungovernable no i mean i'm always a little reluctant to as much as i'd like to think that my book is singularly um um that important i think it has played a role alongside a bunch of other um factors so you know ap and the guardian and then organizations environmental justice foundation and and Human Rights Watch and Greenpeace and Sea Shepherd and a bunch of these organizations, as well as governments. The Australian government has played a huge role, um, the US Government Trafficking Office. So in the last five years, various types of stakeholders have all begun to sort of step up their awareness of um, and 
resources behind the problem that is the seafood supply chain and the problem that is the fact that m the supply chain that starts at the dock and runs to the plate is, you know, as good or bad as the garment industry or the coal industry. You know, it's it's somewhat documented and somewhat not, but more so the, the, the supply chain, the links in that chain that run from the dock to the hook, um, just invisible you know, to a large degree. And that is one of the reasons that companies, um, uh, you know, are to be blamed, um, that they um, have allowed and even benefited from uh, all sorts of bad things that happen at that end of the supply chain, because they haven't um, wanted to. And in some cases, they've even resisted um, being able to answer Hey, do you know where that fish came from? Do you know the conditions from the vessel? Can you tell me each step of the way? Do you know um, all of these key questions that would provide supply chain transparency? Um, I think the book has, and just sort of the, the outlaw ocean reporting in general, alongside all these other players, has the conversation in general has, A, I think, raised uh, public awareness. You know, I think a lot of people um, who knew very little before about sea slavery or ocean dumping or arms trafficking or what have you or, or overfishing um, now know a little bit more about it because we've been working on it. And I also um, think that uh, one of the things that I personally have been eager to push is that there was a problematic divide between the fish people and the human rights people. You know, there was like the, the environmental community was really focused on dolphin-free tuna and plastic, you know, ocean plastic and stuff like the, the ocean issues, very important marine issues, but they really were um, somewhat ignorant of the above the waterline concerns about the humans. And then the human folks, the anti-trafficking folks, anti-slavery folks were really focused on the humans, um, but they were really not um, seeing how those problems feed off of and contribute to the marine issues. Um, and the organizations, you know, also didn't play nice with each other. And so, and within governments, the, you know, State Department in the U.S., you know, the anti-trafficking folks were not even going to the conferences or the meetings that the the NOAA, you know, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, the marine people were going, it's like, or EPA. And so, like, I would go to these meetings and they would say, like, we love talking with you about this stuff, but we're not invited to that conference that they're, and so I'd say, okay, this is ridiculous. You know, you both are working on the ocean space above and below the waterline, and um, I'm going to keep hammering you guys in the press in these stories until you actually bring the conversation together. Because at the end of the day, if you're the government and you're going to push for fixes, um, and your fix one model of one of your solutions is a clipboard in the hands of a guy at port who has a checklist of questions. If all the questions on his, and he's a government guy, are like, hey, do we know this fish or these Nikes came without slave labor? Do we know, you know, and if they only look at one thing and not the other, then that's a complete waste of time, you know. Um, uh, so the the clip the clipboard needs to really be thinking about everything that happened on that ship and out at sea uh, to the humans and to the environment so anyway so i think those are some of the ways um i think the reporting really forced um more of a conversation about the intersection of these issues um than occurred before and this is um, where i'd like to take the conversation next because we've learned a lot about the origin story of the series in the book and 
this uh, glimpse into how, you know, you couldn't put it down. It, it needs more. So what's in the pipeline? I know you've just released a fantastic creative project, um, the Outlaw Ocean Music Project. Uh, there's obviously a lot of fantastic YouTube clips that people can watch that have just incredible videography. And I read somewhere that the film and documentary rights might be uh, already out there, have been purchased. So I'd love to see where this is going next because I do think this is – this is a game changer for giving people a glimpse into what is otherwise invisible. And I think it can spearhead a lot of great activism and um, actionism. Mm, I like that word. <laughs> um, uh, I think, um, so uh, like I said, I was on staff at the Times for 17 years and, and thought, you know, I don't want to put this line of reporting down. And um, so I decided to step away from the New York Times and create my own nonprofit, the Outlaw Ocean Project, which um, would have as its core mission to produce more journalism of this sort and to continue reporting. It would be, it's really expensive reporting. You know, investigative is time consuming and therefore expensive, but this stuff is offshore and it's really time consuming and, and just the access costs a lot. And, and so um, a lot of legacy institutions, the Times included, are um, uh, pulling back from this sort of, and um, so, uh, and the Times isn't pulling back from investigative, but this kind of investigative. Um, so I thought, I, I really want to stick with this. I um, uh, created the nonprofit. It's um, supported by philanthropies and then individual, you know, kind of readers who want to see it continue. And um, and and so um, we're piece in, coming out in the New Yorker, piece in NBC News, piece in the Atlantic. You know, um, same. You know, reported at sea took four or five months to produce. There's a vision. There's all. It always starts with the written piece. You know, a five thousand, ten thousand word, highly narrative piece, is the core body. But from it is um, then really, ideally, all other forms of this of storytelling from the same body of reporting. So small mini videos, kind of now this. You know, kind of social media mini videos a longer 20 minute kind of documentary style things. And then there's this music project where we're working with artists who take sounds from the field, from the reporting and the field recordings and, and make music surrounding the topics. Um, and working with podcast companies to sort of take certain stories and turn them into podcasts and trying to sort of take one body of reporting and provide almost a tapas style meal, you know, like lots of different dishes off the same thing. Um, and uh, that's, you know, kind of uh, what the next, you know, five to eight years will hold, assuming that I can keep the fundraising going. Oh, and yes, definitely. you said, you know, Netflix and DiCaprio bought the rights to the to the book um, and are, you know, working on a feature film and docs, documentary series. Wow. Well, uh, yeah, we'll definitely be lapping up everything you produce and supporting you wherever we can, because, you know, in many ways, the, the mission of OIO is to try and help humanity look through this beautiful life that we get to live through the lens of the ocean. And you seem to be doing that exceptionally well. One thing that sort of popped up to me, just thinking about this statement that we often use about planet ocean and the, the statistic of it, the ocean covering two thirds of the Earth's surface and being the largest habitable space that we share, I sort of got this idea that, well, if it was the other way around and it was one third ocean, two thirds land, 
and we'd been behaving in the same way, we would have been over the edge by now. Is it, is, I mean, I know the oceans are huge and that really does form the spine of, of everything that you've been reporting on. But if it wasn't so big, it seems to me we would have already tipped the scales. Yeah, I, I think that's quite right um, in two ways. On the environmental level, um, we've been a- allowed and able to get away with many of these things for much longer because, you know, dilution is real, right? You know, and so um, we could dump nuclear arms and, you know, oil and everything else um, and kind of just look the other way. It's starting to catch up with us. You know, you see plastic at the bottom of the Marianas Trench, you know, so as big as it is, it has its limits. Uh, Same thing with fishing, you know, oh, you know, and you look in literature and you see the oceans are are sort of this uh, sui generis, self-producing, endlessly bountiful, you know, fields that just, you know, give rise to massive quantities of fish. Well, you know, and then there's you know, decimation of species that no longer exist and stocks, 80% of the world's fish stocks are at the edge or beyond the edge of, um, uh, of collapsing. So, um, so yeah, I think uh, this moment would have come much sooner where the ocean's not so big. And the same thing on the human rights front, you know, because it's so big, you know, 56 million people work out there, but it's huge and sprawling. And so for the most part, people stay away from each other. Um, but uh, at the same time, you know, when you're looking at the Chinese fleet having a million boats, like it's there are a lot of players out there and they're often going to the same areas. You look at these, you know, armed clashes happening in the South China Sea over the Spratly Islands, over fossil fuels. You know, it's sprawling, but the the valuable stuff is often in certain areas and a lot of players are coming there. And that's when things start getting thorny. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about the sort of deep sea mining. Um, you know, it's it's still only an emerging issue being sort of spoken about in Australia in this part of the world, but I know it's certainly becoming very topical and of concern in other areas. You went and reported on some um, proposed mining off the coast of Brazil. Um, I'd love you to sort of tell us a little bit about that particular story as well as what it's like to go down in that submersible for someone who, you know, is um, yeah maybe. Just describe what it's like to go down to the deep ocean and look at some of these, you know, old coral systems. Yeah, I mean, I think um, so. There, I think it's important to think of the different types of industrial activity happening on the seafloor. And to first again think of, you know, if the oceans and the high seas are a frontier beyond the frontier, then the seafloor of the high seas are a frontier beyond that, right? In terms of invisibility, in terms of governance. Um, and yet there's a lot of valuable stuff down there and below the seafloor, oil and gas, on the seafloor, manganese nodules and these precious metals that make our iPhones go. Um, and and then, you know, bioprospecting the cure for AIDS or COVID or, you know, possibly in the jellyfish, you know, so there's a lot of lucrative, very enticing things down there that various players want to get access to. And um, therefore, the, 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 the story you reference off the coast of Brazil was a story largely about, you know, oil and gas, sort of traditional drilling operations that had been approved to do their thing, you know, off the coast of Brazil, especially 
and worryingly close to the mouth of the Amazon and also perilously close to this huge coral reef system that was very unusual in various biological ways. Um, and a fight that ensued between these oil companies and the Brazilian government sort of behind them and these Brazilian scientists and Greenpeace activists behind them. And that story was to some degree a clash that has been unfolding for a couple of decades now, you know, um, over oil and gas interests. And, and also as technology has allowed for drilling to happen in deeper waters in the Arctic and all sorts of, you know, harder climates, um, uh, things have gotten, companies have gotten more daring and, and the, the risks of a spill have gotten more severe. Then there's this other kind of milling, you know, mining that you also referenced seabed mining, which um, is very nascent. Um, uh, the technology is kind of just arriving to its um, capabilities. The zoning system for um, the governing body at the UN, the Seabed Mining Authority, that allows companies to go after this stuff is also really murky and pretty young in its governing abilities. And the players that want to get access to that stuff and the stuff that they're seeking are these manganese nodules and other precious metals that are super essential in the green economy, you know, the, and the high tech economy. So from iPhones to long lasting batteries, all things that we desperately are addicted to iPhones or really need long lasting batteries, you know, to like survive climate change. So the dark underbelly is where are we going to get the stuff that allows for those solutions and are we going to create new problems in the attempt to solve old ones? Um, and that's the seabed mining uh, conundrum. Uh, and again, it's a type of industrial activity that happens way far from land, deep in the water where no one's around and, and often off the coast of countries that don't have any capability to police their fishing, much less police these guys. You know, like they don't have submarines, they don't have long haul boats that can go out and check on these rigs. So all that spells for some real legitimate worries about that type of mining, which is starting to pick up now. Yeah. Okay. Great. And thanks for the um, yeah the clarification there about that Brazil story and the oil and gas companies. Um, yeah, going down in that sub, though, what's it, what's it like uh, to go down in these submersibles and, and what depth were you at in that particular instance? Oh, I should remember what depth we were at. I don't recall how deep. It seemed insanely deep to me. It was dark and took a while to get down there. And, and I underestimated. I went twice, uh, once um, in the Arctic. Were we in the Antarctic or the Arctic? We were in the Antarctic. And the other time I went off the coast of Brazil, so very different types of climates, but the same submersible, um, uh, same company. The first time I went, I was very blasé about the whole thing, and I got in there, and and it it the 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 vessel is tiny. It looks like a Mini Cooper. It's very cute and pretty, and and I was with a guy I've known forever, this guy named John Hosevar, head of oceans operations at Greenpeace, and he knows how to drive these things. But you're you're cordoned off from him. He was in his own little bubble, part of the same vehicle, and I was over in mine, and we can talk to each other through a headset, but we are in our own isolated space. But I had responsibilities 
to make sure that the oxygen was flowing right and my meters were right. And there was a lot to keep track of. And I was like, oh, it'll be fine. I got in there and they were bombarding me with all this information about you got to flip this and you got to make sure this number doesn't go above that and don't let your elbow hit this. And and so I realized, oh, wow, I really got to pay attention here or I might die. You know, like I might run out of air in my compartment. And if we're down really deep, we can't get up in time. So that made me suddenly nervous. And then when we were a crane picks you up and takes you to the edge of the ship and then kind of gently plops you in the water and the engines come on and you start diving. And as the water closed in around me and around my shell, you know, my, my um, glass top, I got this insane panic, you know, like what am I doing? And this is really scary. And so for the first three minutes, but it felt like three hours, I was sweating and really afraid. And then um, this calm came over me and I realized we were going to be fine. And the, the sheer weirdness and beauty of being in this dark space. Um, and then also as we got deeper, the weird creatures we started seeing um, took all my fear away and made me suddenly feel like, okay, now we're in out of space and I'm seeing space. You know, I'm seeing amazing otherworldly things. And... Um, uh, for the rest of the time, I was just this wild-eyed little boy, you know, like marveling at what I was getting to see. And John was explaining to me, he's a biologist, so he was telling me all the, the you know, the wonky terms of what I was witnessing. But it was just a marvel. And we got to the bottom and we, we sort of um, documented, or I didn't, I wrote along, but they documented with camera and, and otherwise um, the, the kind of um, uh, wildlife and, and flora and fauna they were seeing down there um, as part of their mission. Yeah, no, and um, this is actually one of the videos that you can check out on your um, Ian Abina YouTube channel as well and see footage of you going through the experience. You look pretty calm, cool, and collected, um, but I guess that would have been pretty terrifying. <laughs> What were some of the other, I mean, you've had probably so many of these sort of terrifying and touchy moments throughout um, the reporting period. What were some of the others that really stand out where you, you really felt for your, for your life? Um, I mean, there were a handful, um, let's see, that are hard to render um, concisely. I'll try my best. Um, one uh, had to do with this story that concerns the chase of the thunder and it's this longest kind of law enforcement chase in nautical history and it involved um, Sea Shepherd was was chasing Interpol's most wanted ship and they had found these guys in Antarctica and they were going to chase them uh, to draw attention to the bad things they were doing and I uh, begged my way onto the mission you know and but they were already in the midst of a chase and um, so the logistics of how I would get onto the ship without the two Sea Shepherd ships having to deviate from their course to pick me up because they couldn't come to land or they'll lose their guy, right? And um, so what we worked out was a rendezvous point really far from shore where I had to go and be and wait and not be late. And they would swing by, pick me up, and then swing back into their chase. And... I had only 72 hours or so um, between when I was sitting in Washington, D.C., where I live, and when I had to be in Accra, Ghana, and I had to find my own ride out to this spot, you know, these coordinates at sea. And 
So 72 hours ain't much time to like whip up a plan for like finding someone to take you in, in Ghana where I'd never been. And, and so that was a complete sprint. And um, the first effort to get to the coordinates had me pay off these Marine police in the main port in Ghana who were going to take me out there. Um, but we, I realized and my photographer realized very quickly that these guys had never left, been deeper than, you know, 11 miles from shore. And we were going out a couple hundred. And um, as the waters got rougher, they began to panic and it, it turned into this very tense situation where the crew didn't want to do go any further and the officers did. And it almost led to this mutiny and this fist fight. And, and then finally the crew, the bigger guys and more of them won the day and, and convinced the officers to turn back. And so I was, you know, screwed and I wasn't going to get, you know, get to my target and I was going to miss the story of a lifetime. And we start heading back in and um, the engine dies and the panel on the boat dies. And so we were floating there with no engine in pretty rough waters and a 40 foot, you know, Coast Guard cutter size vessel getting tossed around and had no idea where we were and how we were going to get back. And for four or five, and I had one bar of battery left on my sat phone, which I tried to call my researcher and get her to tell us, could she see where I was, you know, all this and it didn't work. And so for four or five hours, we sat there and I remember being deeply afraid. Like, I can't believe this is how it's going to end. You know, I really thought about like, because if we, if we got, if, yeah, I mean, there were, there are lots of ways that could have ended extremely poorly because we were really far from shore. We had no radio capabilities and we were going to drift into not friendly waters pretty soon if not out to sea. And it was just like, but anyway, you know, a lucky, lucky fate was a fishing vessel came close enough that we could show lights and they came over. And anyway, we got back to shore. I found another vessel, took us out to the coordinates I got on the, you know, it all ended up working out. Um, but for those four hours, I was really scared. <laughs> I love that you got straight back on the horse and made your date with the Sea Shepherd. We've actually spoken a little bit about the Chasing the Thunder um, on the podcast before with the CEO of Austral Fisheries, whose um, oh, yeah. vessel, the Atlas Cove, came to, to join the final um, final piece of the chase. Yeah, and, they did great work. Yeah, they were super inspiring. Yeah, and so we touched on it a little bit earlier, but there's an example, I suppose, of a fishery um, with legitimate players who are doing the right thing, who have benefited from a crackdown on illegal fishing of, of toothfish down in the Southern Ocean. So um, there is there is some good news stories out there. Uh, we're going to wrap things up pretty soon, Ian, but um, I suppose just once again, I'm going to try and claw our way back to, to thinking with our solutionist brains on and, and what can happen here. And it does feel to me that maybe one of the things that we haven't quite touched on yet is this, the power of the families and the companies that, ultimately uh the top of the hierarchy when it comes to either the the merchant side or the fishing side now one of the things we say with oio is like if sustainability was profitable then we wouldn't have any problems so what can we see forecast happening where these huge powerful families and industries can start to diversify or find other ways that aren't so damaging to people and the ocean and wildlife mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think uh, I can answer the question from a couple different angles. One, 
um, and you tell me which one you're most interested in. One is um, how might different stakeholders apply pressure on those players, meaning the market players, to um, uh, help solve the problem? Um, I think that's one question. And separate question is um, more minute, and that is what are some of the tools that I think are most promising you know, for the solving of some of these problems. So which of those two is the one that... Let's go with the first one. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think... Um, so it, I do believe that governments are slow-moving beasts. And li I personally think that there's more likelihood that um, solutions will come out of the marketplace by market players um, than it being legislated. Partially because the space where the problems occur is often outside of one country and often the players are flagged to one country, ship owned by another, crewed by another, you know, like fishing in a third country. So it gets complicated. But if the fish is going to Walmart, you know, or Whole Foods or, or the EU, big, big buyers, then they can, all that jurisdictional stuff goes out the window. And now you have like one funnel um, and it's it becomes an issue of well if you want to sell to us um you need to comply with these standards right um and that's going to raise the price of all the fish that comes through that funnel so our buyers are going to have to be willing to accept that bump up in cost um but maybe they reach a point where they say yeah i'm sick of seeing these stories from people like you and me about all the bad things. So yeah, fine. Charge me an extra 50 cents per can of tuna so that those stories won't be there anymore. And that's the cost of the EU or the United States or Walmart um, to impose standards on any fish that um, you're going to sell to them. And th then the question becomes, so what are the standards, right? And that's that clipboard thing I was mentioning before. Like, what ends up being on that clipboard? Well, first of all, let's make sure it's not just fish-focused or fisher-focused. You know, let's make sure that it's actually thinking about all of them. And second of all, that gets us into that other question of, like, there, you know, crew manifest, you know, onboard monitoring, onboard cameras, satellite monitoring, you know, blockchain often gets tossed around some interesting things there but you know better supply chain accountability um uh you know um do the workers have contracts do we know at each step of the way have we banned transshipment so that if you're running a boat you can't offload it to another boat that then brings it to shore and the people at shore have no idea wait where did all this fish come from seven different boats what's up What's happening on those boats? No, no, no. Those boats need to come into dock so that we can check them out and, and spot check all these things. So, so these sorts of steps are the kinds of steps that if market players wanted to clean up their supply chain, they would embrace. And, um, and, and I think the, the problems um, would, would start um, uh, decreasing fast. Yeah, absolutely. And you did touch on a couple of examples there where you know, government intervention did work. I think, you know, the Indonesian case with um, Susi Pujatuti. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Some great yeah. work. And yeah. any other examples that come to mind that where, where you know, it, it seems to be that they're developing solutions that are working and showing a glimpse of hope? 
I mean, a, a bunch of, you know, Global Fishing Watch is this interesting organization that, that sort of works with governments to try to convince them to, number one, improve the data of their monitoring of their waters and their fleet, even their boats that are in other waters, and sort of force those vessels to keep their transponders on, force those vessels to not just use AIS transponders, which you can turn off, but VMS transponders, which are harder to turn off, like um, get your... So Argentina, Chile, you know, Indonesia, Thailand, to some degree, has bought into these things like um, uh, working with organizations like that that will advise them on ways that they can keep track of their fleet and their waters better. And then also in the best of worlds, um, make that data not uh, make, make it public, you know, so that it's not just a bunch of fisheries folks in that one country who see these things and can be bought off, but rather... It's accessible by journalists, you know, advocates, academics who can check them and say, you know, um, and then a market of um, players that will emerge, I think, naturally who say, hey, for our price, we will look at the data and we'll tell you risk levels, red, yellow, green flags on the various ships. And then your buyers can say, hey, look we're not going to take fish off of any ship that has a red flag until it's gone through these extra steps to verify that it wasn't up to something sketchy, but any green flag, you know, um, th there are these sorts of things that can happen if the data is accessible to the right players. Um, so I think um, all those things would be um, big, big steps. Mm, fantastic. All right, Ian, well, um, I think we'll sort of bring our conversation to a close. Uh, any things that you think necessary to express or communicate before we wrap things up? And, and if not, maybe some final words and some information on where people can find you, next steps for the project. Oh, yeah, I, don't, I mean, I, I, I do think um, this is a very self-serving thing to say, but I, I think journalism has a really important role to play in explaining and translating a lot of the academic and advocacy work into narrative and into terms and, and pressure testing them. Um, and so I do really think it's important to try to keep uh, journalism robust and keep shows like yours going, you know, where people are talking about the space, because it's really easy to ignore it and forget it. And that's how we got where we are. And then to your second question, um, you know, uh, theoutlawocean.com is where we live and uh, where the nonprofit is. And, and um, you know, all the journalism we produce, we put in third party venues to so the New Yorker, Der Spiegel or BBC, but we also publish on our own website. Um, uh, so th that's where you can find me. Right. Well, yeah, I think, um, you know, as someone who's worked in ocean conservation for you know, over a decade and, um, you know, the, a book like this comes and it genuinely, it genuinely creates a, a shockwave. And it just goes to show, to your point, how necessary it is to support this type of journalism and obviously all the ensuing communications that come from it. So mm -hmm. I thank you personally and on behalf of all our listeners for the work you've done and you'll continue to do. Thank you very much.
Take the ocean out of